Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Bounty episode of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre with me as Z. Today, we have a number of topics to cover, including some WAF bypasses, a universal cross-site scripting in Netlify's Next.js, uh, and bypassing Chrome Sanitizer API. Um, so, yeah, I guess we'll jump into our first topic, which is uh, three vulnerabilities that were discovered in Netlify's Next.js uh, lib, which was posted by Sam Curry. Um, Next.js is used across many cryptocurrency websites and such due to its Web3 support. And the post starts off by detailing some of the different problems and attack scenarios you have within the Web3 ecosystem, especially when it comes to the, the big three, CIA, confidential, confidentiality, integrity, and availability, um, particularly when it comes to integrity. Because when you're dealing with these crypto-based sites, whether it's to buy NFTs or send a transaction or whatever, you have to be able to trust the data you're getting is legitimate. Most people aren't going to be, you know, digging into the blockchain to verify addresses or something, especially if it's a trusted site they've used before. So, yeah, we've covered some attacks and scenarios like this before on the podcast. I went back to try to remember which episode it was. Uh, I don't know if you would have that, Z, but there was one episode where we talked about a website where um, the idea was using a cross-site scripting to um, put up a fake transaction for like an NFT or whatever, and, and it was used... Uh, or it could be used to to steal money in that respect, but I couldn't remember which episode it was. Yeah, I, I do remember the issue you're talking about. I don't remember uh, which was on which episode it was. Yeah. Uh, also, just from chat, are you guys liking this? Yeah, sorry, I'll, I will put links in chat as we go. Um, the the bot is still on vacation a little bit. The link bot, so we'll we'll get that working again soon. But right now, it's it's not working. All right. Um, but yeah, so obviously integrity is a big problem when it comes to Web3. You have to make sure that the data that's being sent to the client can be trusted um, and the client has to be able to trust that data. So with that in mind, they went and audited Next.js and ended up finding three issues. Uh, the first of which was a relatively straightforward one, and it was an open redirect in the next image uh, endpoint for uh, for loading resources. Um and this would take a URL parameter from the user and it would use it to send a mock HTTP request to itself. The problem seems to be that you can pass slashes into the URL parameter unencoded and redirect to an arbitrary site, which they say isn't normally possible um, to pass. Like they say backslashes unencoded in regular HTTP requests. It's a little confusing what they mean here. I'm assuming the main point is just the fact that you can pass slashes in that are unencoded, but the way it's worded is a little bit confusing there, so I might be missing something. Yeah, possibly, this, but. this part confused me a little bit also. Um, I mean, what they do is they're sending in this slash backslash backslash slash backslash thing, um, which then seems to result in the actual location being a slash followed by... Um, or no, no, sorry, not preceded. They've got... A slight change, though, because they send in these four characters before it and get out kind of this extra slash uh, before the example, which seems odd to have that. And either following, yeah. I mean, I don't know, this one... I So, yeah, you're saying escaping the uh, out-of-chat regex generator, escaping the Slash, so it looks like slash slash example. And I mean, the thing is, they started off with the forward slash unescaped, and then they escaped the second 
forward slash, and then they include another backslash to what escape the E. It doesn't exactly make sense what's going on here, but I'm I'm going to put it this way. It seems that this magic invocation gives them an open redirect. Um, yeah. I could see, like, you know, the slash doing a double slash URL, you know, that kind of makes sense. Exactly what's going on here, I'm not sure. I'd probably have to dig into the commit, see the fix or whatever on this, and see kind of what's going on. Because it does seem to have to do with uh, trying to access a folder that doesn't exist. So there, there is a little bit going on here. Um, these trees ask why the backslash before example. That's the same question I have, honestly. They seem to have gotten this with this invocation of slashes, but I'm a little bit unclear on exactly why that's, that works. Um, I yeah. usually try and dig into it, and I did actually spend a little while trying to dig into this one. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to make a ton of progress on that. Yeah, it could potentially be a typo, maybe on the second one with a location, but I would kind of... I wouldn't want to go to that right away just because the entire idea of like doing this, uh, the stuff with the backslashes is, is the root of the issue. So like messing that up in the write up would be, uh, would really suck for the reader. So I'm guessing it's just something we're not understanding with like the back end. They're doing some kind of weird thing when it comes to backslashes that, um, that is causing it to transform into this, situation where it tries to access a folder um and th this part's a little bit weird too um because it would it would try to the default behavior of next.js servers is to redirect users when they try to access a folder that isn't accessible so that's kind of like what they're trying to to convey here is the fact that you're able to fake a folder the folder doesn't exist so that's what causes the redirect and that's where the open redirect comes from um but yeah how exactly it gets there is a little bit unclear um, something interesting that gets called out also is the fact that the redirect would happen on the user side versus the server side, uh, which seemed a little bit strange, though that's because an error was being triggered on the back end where the URL ended in a slash, so it would break out, um, and it didn't follow its server side. So yeah, there, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on with this first issue, basically. Um, but that behavior also led them into looking at what, uh, was the second issue, uh, which is a cross-site scripting and SSRF in the Netlify IPX library, which is installed by default on a lot of Netlify applications. Um, IPX would set up this route that was similar to the previous uh, next image route, where it would take a path to load a resource, and it too would allow external resourcing, uh, external resource loading rather on Netlify's IPX library, but only on whitelisted hosts. Um, the problem is, it seems that the parsing that UNJS uh, UFO was doing. Uh, which is what Netlify relies on, was bugged in a similar way to the first issue. Um, you could just add a whitelisted host, um, depicted as example.com in this case, and then use an encoded backslash and the attacker URL. Um, and in that case, you could just pass a malicious external SVG, which if it had the, the image SVG XML content type could be used for XSS. So this one was a little bit more uh, clear and straightforward forward how it worked it still relies on the backslash which we don't know fully what's happening on the on the back end here but um yeah it, it's kind of a similar issue to the first one uh it's almost like a variant if you will uh, in a slightly different area 
The final issue was the universal cross-site scripting that the title mentions and was also in the IPX route. Um, as they discovered, the IPX code would read the hex-forwarded proto-header to allow other protocols to get used. And if you did specify uh, another protocol, um, it, it would just take that and substitute it into the string for, for building up the request URL. So because of that, an attacker can just specify an X-forwarded proto-header to whatever domain they control and get control over the URL the request gets sent to. Um, so really straightforward exploitation there. Um, and it's also universal because you're not relying on having to put a whitelist, a whitelisted domain at the front end of the payload. So yeah, pretty cool uh, final issue to close it off. And uh, yeah, a few different vulnerabilities in Netlify there. Nothing super complex, mostly just bad parsing code. Um, although I, I would like to understand the first issue a little bit better. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe we can dig into that a little bit more um, after the fact. But yeah, I mean, su super, uh, super bad parsing code from what I can deduce from these vulnerabilities. But the impact here is fairly high because uh, Sam Curry states multiple times in the article that this Netlify lib has pretty widespread adoption in Web3. Um, and Web3 has a huge financial motivation for attackers to abuse these types of issues. So um, yeah, pretty pretty high impact issues uh, as they go. Yeah, I also I appreciate I'm opening up talking uh, kind of about how the Web3 websites do differ from your standard web app. Because I mean, there are a lot of similarities in the sense that you've still got a web app and still kind of vulnerable to those things. But the threat model does change when you're dealing with largely, you know, static websites, denial of service and availability isn't quite like the same uh, criticality, I guess, with these sort of app stuff. I did appreciate kind of that starter bit. And also um, earlier you brought up a prior vulnerability, which we covered. I did go and find that that was uh, on Rarible's NFT marketplace where there's the wormable cross-site scripting, which we covered in May of last year. All right, not last year, last season, May of this year still. Um, ah, right, yeah. I, I, I remember it being like a fairly recent episode, which is why it was frustrating me that I couldn't find it. But uh, yeah, it was nice that you found it there. So yeah, that was episode 141 um, for anybody that might want to refer back to that. That was actually a pretty cool issue, so uh, it would be worth checking out if you missed it. All right, uh, with that out of the way, though, we'll get into a post by Asset Note on a pre-auth RCE in Bitbucket, uh, which was inspired by William Bowling's GitHub Enterprise RCE finding from back in 2020. Uh, toward the top of the post, they go through setting up their testing environment with running a Bitbucket server from Docker Hub and using uh, PSPy for doing some log parsing. But then they get into a vulnerability they found in the methodology section, which was an argument injection in a git subcommand. Uh, so for those watching, you may be able to see here there they have this path um, where there's a REST endpoint and this project user's repo, repo one browser endpoint had an at parameter and they tried injecting help, um, the help argument into the git command. And that en ended up working, um, but that didn't have any security impact um, because, you know, help isn't really going to get you anything useful. It didn't seem like there were any other useful arguments they can inject. Um, but it was a promising sign. You know, if they found one, then they could potentially find others uh, in that same area, which they did. Um, in the next paragraph, they detail another endpoint they found, which was vulnerable to, to argument injection, uh, which was in the latest project's repo archive endpoint for streaming an archive of repo contents to a given uh, at a given commit. And when they looked at the documentation, they found that the endpoint would take a prefix parameter, which would map 
directly to the double dash prefix argument to the archive subcommand. Uh, with some knowledge of command and argument injection and how they worked, they tried one of the more common tricks and built a test payload with um, padding followed by a null byte, followed by this option argument, which is an invalid argument. It's just something they were testing with. Um, and then another null byte in padding, which when they tried that, it, they got the error saying that option wasn't a valid argument, uh, confirming that that archive endpoint was vulnerable to argument injection. Um, the reason this happened, which they don't really go into until further down in the post where they root cause, is because their process builder would use the native Java function fork and exec um, to launch the subcommand. And that function just takes a character array for the command argument, right? Um, and indexes inside of character arrays are separated by null bytes. So by being able to pass in a null byte, they could basically smuggle their own indexes inside of that character array. And um, somewhat importantly here is it depends on that translation between the Java strings, which just use the prepended size byte, just or I think it might be a couple bytes, but it has the size kind of ahead ahead of the string, so there are no special characters. Whereas, of course, when you go into uh, Java native stuff, that's generally in C, which is going to be using the null terminated string. So when it converts the Java string array into the C array for using with this native function, you just kind of get this extra element introduced. Yeah. So exploitation is always a little bit interesting where argument injection is concerned, as what you can do with it is very context-specific. In this case, they lucked out a little bit and found that get archive had an exec argument, which would take a path to the uh, get upload archive binary for to execute it. And the way that they exploited this issue was they just basically passed that path into... Um, well, okay, rather, let me step back a minute. Um, the get archive exec argument, the way that would work was it would just pass that path into exec VE of, of bin SH. So exploiting was pretty straightforward because whatever path they passed in there would just go through to the shell. Um, they weren't doing any like kind of validation on the binary that was getting provided for get upload archive. So yeah, very straightforward exploitation primitive. Um, by simply passing a prefix that smuggles an exec, they get command execution. Now, as I said at the beginning, this is a pre-auth accessible vuln. Um, there is some stipulations, though. Because of the way that the path works with needing the project key and the repository slugs, you would need those um, if you were going to try to hit this endpoint. Um, so there are some conditions to exploit it. You do need some information, but it's still a pre-auth RCE, so... Um, impact is still pretty high there. It's just got a few requirements. Overall, pretty interesting uh, vulnerability, like Z was talking about, with these are the types of issues you could end up getting when you have to convert from like um, the higher level language strings into lower level and null termination. Um, it's a very easy issue to have pop up, so I'm not too surprised that it, it turned out to be an issue in this case. Um, but yeah, pretty, pretty good post by Asset Node and uh, a cool vulnerability. And their methodology section is also worth calling out. Um, just the way they went about it, basically, is getting logging on all of the commands that get executed by the uh, local environments they can track for all of the uh, syncs to get. Um, they do talk about the tooling that they used for that, uh, PSPy, which I'm unfamiliar with, but... um. You know, it is something that you would be able to apply to another program, either something else using Git, trying to follow for that, or anything else. And yeah, I mean, it 
seems like a bit of an easier way. I remember I've looked in the past for um, you know code execution in a similar way, and I was more looking at the code itself, whereas this is a bit more of a dynamic testing or a dynamic analysis way of going about it. Uh, it's worth calling it out. Nah, it's an option for it. And IA2BR mentions PSPy is great and highly recommend, so we've got a recommendation for it. Oh, there we go. All right, so uh, Chrome also had an issue disclosed in the last few weeks that was reported in March, and uh, I'll let Z get into this one, because this one, it's a bit of a multi-layered issue, and we had to dig into the comments a little bit to see what was going on in terms of uh, another bug, bug being discovered. Yes, this one is a bounty, so they got a $1,000 bounty for this one. Um, and should also mention, actually, I believe it was the last topic, where they got a uh, six thousand dollar bounty. Uh, let me uh, just yeah, that check. sounds right. Yeah. Yes, that one was a six thousand dollar bounty. We didn't mention that. Uh, so this one got a thousand dollar bounty, but the issue is closed. It's not a bug. Um, I don't think I've seen that before. Where they still got paid out, and it's because even though this one was closed as not really being an issue, they did uncover some that was an issue related to the report. Uh, so the first thing, and kind of the core issue here, is just the idea, I wanted to shout out, of bypassing uh, the Sanitizer API using prototype pollution. Which I don't think has been discussed um, at all. I don't recall really seeing this. Kind of makes sense as a target if you've got it. You do depend on them actually passing in the object versus um, if they just use empty brackets, then... Uh, the prototype pollution won't end up working, but if they do pass in the polluted object, uh, then you can perhaps get uh, some rules set up that will enable either excess or something a little bit more, a little bit more useful than um, you know, what the sanitizer should allow. So it's it's an interesting way of attacking the sanitizer API. Um, I just wanted to shout out the actual issue that they found as a result of this is. The example that they use here shouldn't work regardless of prototype pollution or not. Um, oh, also, using prototype pollution to attack the Sanitizer API, they decide that's just JavaScript being JavaScript, and um, they really shouldn't be introducing extra complexity to protect this one API against the particular, um, against a particular vulnerability, and just leave it as that's what the JavaScript language supports, and therefore... You know, it's okay. Uh, so now the actual issue that got paid out on is also a little bit interesting. Just in the fact that it existed in this particularly security-sensitive area, and that is this allow elements with uh, the SVG. So they're basically saying, you know, allow whatever elements, giving the allow list forum, SVG, SVG, and SVG use. The bug was basically that they would misclassify any so in kind of html you've got the different namespaces you've got your normal namespace which is or your regular space which is like your a tag divs all, all your normal things it can also classify things as custom so if you're actually registering a custom element um and lastly you've got namespace things like svg where under svg you can have some special tags you can use um or math is another one you have special tags under there the issue was when it tried to classify these, normally 
um, SVG would be classified as just kind of under their regular setup, and then it would hit their normal HTML baseline lookup and be like, okay, this is this sort of element, and drop it, because it's just part of the baseline and not something they're going to let through. Um, you can't, you shouldn't even be able to allow elements and let this through with the sanitizer API. Uh, and the issue is basically anything under the namespaces SVG or math, or um, I'm not sure if there are other namespaces. Those are the two I really see mentioned a lot. Um, anything under namespaces just got categorized as unknown and was able to slip through and go through a few uh, other checks and potentially be enabled as they did here. Um, it was just straightforward not matching on any of the namespaced elements. Yeah. And just to clarify for those who might be listening and, and can't see the proof of concept code, um, basically what they were doing at the prototype pollution is because you can pass a config object to the sanitizer to have like a whitelist of elements, um, they were using the prototype pollution to set allow elements themselves and were adding SVG into that list. Um, but the bug that Z is talking about is the fact that it could even get that far. Um, usually, if this was working correctly, you you shouldn't be able to pass SVG elements even if they were in the allow elements array um, because they're just not supposed to um, be allowed regardless. So, yeah, it's a it's a little bit interesting with uh, how they're able to uncover that deeper issue. And yeah, I don't think I have seen that before either. Where like a, a a report that was closed as informational or whatever would be rewarded a bounty. So that was kind of cool. But uh, yeah, it's a really like interesting idea just using prototype pollution against the browser's own uh, security APIs. I mean, it, it totally makes sense to to try it in that way. But uh, yeah, like IBR said, it's, it's kind of like a galaxy brain idea. Like, you know, let's let's use it against itself, basically. Yeah. I, and that was one of the key things I wanted to call out is, you know, it just seems like a really cool idea and something to keep in mind if you're up against sanitizer API. I mean, you would need and on how sanitizer API is getting used, you might need this pretty early on if they create the sanitizer early in the process, as I would imagine they do. But you could also imagine a sanitizer being created like as needed, and you'd have more chance for a pollution to actually impact it. Um, but yeah, uh, it is, like I mentioned, also kind of fun just, you know, not fixed, but still given the bounty. Um, I did also open up briefly the... Uh, actual spec for it that kind of explains how the sanitizer config is supposed to work where for these baseline elements it's supposed to just drop them and not even get far enough to check the uh configs um so you can take a look at the spec if you really want to dig into it it has been fixed now um but it was present and was there All right, so uh, we'll get into our next post, which is from Cyber uh, Cider Security, rather. <laughs> got uh, got tongue twisted there. And uh, it talks about some techniques using webhooks of source control management or SEMs like GitHub and GitLab to get access to internal CIs, um, such as Jenkins instances. Uh, I'll let Z take this one away as well. Yeah, they really do just focus on the Jenkins instances in this post in terms of what they actually do with it. But the principle applies elsewhere, and you could probably use this for finding other issues. But core idea is really just, in a lot of cases, a company is going to have, you know, a Jenkins setup or some sort of CI service. Uh, Jenkins being one of the most popular of those services. And they're going to want that to interact with their source code management system, like GitHub or GitLab, 
um, to have those web hooks on like a push to main or something, uh, hit their CI servers, kick off a pipeline to build or whatever. But they probably don't want just the internet at large to be able to access uh, their Jenkins instance. That's less than ideal. So what some companies will do, and not what's necessarily recommended, but what they can do is just whitelist the source code management IPs, all the webhook IPs they'll be using, whitelist them to access Jenkins. And this is kind of talking about abusing that sort of access where you have a webhook, you know, because on GitHub, you can set up a webhook to anywhere. It doesn't have to be your Jenkins instance that you're pointing it to or your CI. You can put it wherever you want, including some corporate CI and try and um, abuse that access. Uh, so what they were looking at is different endpoints they can try and hit. And a couple core things they did figure out early on is how each of the services, GitHub and GitLab are the two that they looked at, how those services treat redirects. Key thing being that GitHub would not follow any redirects. It would, you'd get, you'd be able to see the response back saying like this would have redirected, but, and showing you like the location error, but wouldn't follow them. GitLab on the other hand would follow redirects. Uh, and that becomes important when it comes to what type of endpoints you can actually reach with any of these webhooks. Uh, with with GitHub, you're really just limited to endpoints that will accept a post. And um, you don't really have much control over the post body. That's going to be all the webhook information. With GitLab, you can take advantage of, you know, a secondary redirect like an attacker website that will redirect elsewhere. Uh, to drop the body and turn it into a get using like a 302. Side note, if you're ever in a case where you need a um, redirection to happen and you want to actually keep the body, more common if you're in like a, maybe an SSRF and you want to leak information from the body, you can use a, I think a 307 or 306 will do that. There are a bunch of redirect codes. Some of them will keep the body, some won't. A lot of people are just familiar with the more common um, redirect codes. Anyway, that is unrelated to this post. Um, coming on with this one, uh, one of the first things they kind of targeted or actually pulled off uh, was just an authentication brute force. Honestly, doesn't seem super practical to me um, doing any sort of brute forcing over the internet. But they basically found, you know, they could hit the Jenkins login page effectively, send their username and password, and the Jenkins would accept the uh, parameters in the URL rather than the post body. Um, so even though it's a post request, it'll still parse the URL and it'll treat any parameters that are in the URL as equivalent to having come in the post body. So by setting up your webhook to point to the auth location, you can basically brute force password, brute force the login. Really, like it feels to me like you're going to have a big time span, you know, needing to the commanding to do something that triggers the webhook every time. On a network thing, um, it just doesn't feel super likely. Uh, Garlic, uh, um, in, or Garlic 0x539 in chat also mentioned, is this just useful because it isn't rate limited? I believe you can set up rate limiting on Jenkins too. Um, so that's another aspect of it. You know, it, It's this... mostly, like, what they're calling out is mostly just the fact that you can hit the login endpoint at all because it is internalized. It's not supposed to be exposed to the wide internet. Um, so the fact that you can potentially brute force this login page is like a bit of an issue. 
Um, like you're saying, practically, I don't really know how that's going to happen unless the password is super weak, maybe, or they're using like default creds, which to be fair, maybe they would do because they're like, okay, it's an internal instance. Nobody can hit this from the internet. Who cares? But yeah, it does rely on the setup being kind of poor for, for this to even be like a taken advantage of, I guess. Yeah, Rudimol mentions, like, try top 100 passwords. Yeah, there are totally ways you can do this. Um, I'm just saying, like, on a practical sense, you're not pulling off a big brute force attack with this. Just generally speaking, networks aren't, like, network brute force isn't a great thing. And yeah, it's, there are some issues, but it is, you can do it. And it does start off, um, kind of kick off the rest of the chains once you're logged in. Um... Now, all of the webhooks are stateless, which would mean that you do have from this webhook and get perhaps to a endpoint that you actually care about. Um, or, I mean, you could just be leaking the um, leaking the credentials this way, too. But um, thank you, Imperial G, for the uh, nine months of uh, Twitch Prime. Uh, so yeah, jumping back on what they kind of found here, the brute force, it's kind of the first issue that they had there. And then with GitLab, because GitLab would follow those redirects, um, beyond this, they also found that they could actually start exposing sensitive pages. Um, in particular, there's this from parameter used in the login that they could use to internally redirect themselves after the login. Uh, so they talked about using that to end up heading uh, console text. So it's worth noting that is something in GitLab. Um, so the, the the article kind of diverges here where it talks about GitHub first and kind of the limitations with uh, with GitHub. You can't really do as much cool stuff with it, basically. You you don't have as much control. You It won't follow the redirects, obviously, and it doesn't display page contents. Um, GitLab supports the redirects with that from um, parameter, and it also displays the page content. Uh, displays the page contents as well. Um, so that that lets you exfil some useful data or whatever. Um, there is a bit of a difference, though, between like what you can pull off with GitHub and GitLab. GitLab lets you do a lot more cool stuff, basically. Yeah, as I mentioned, this is, at this point, just hitting uh, the GitLab webhooks or another system. I mean, this idea is at least something you could apply to any time you have... Um, uh, compromise on any sort of, I mean, it doesn't even have to only be a source code management system. Could be something else, but you can imagine this sort of particular setup where the SCM is allowed to access uh, something like Jenkins and does have that privilege level of access. Um, while it's not the best route to go for it for allowing a remote uh, source system to access your CI system, it is an easy way of doing it where you just whitelist everything. So it is something you can definitely take advantage of. Uh, so I thought just the exploration of the concept was kind of worth looking at here. Uh, so yeah, the next one they kind of go for is full chaining RC. This does rely on Jenkins running an old version, um, a 2019 vulnerability that Orange Psy um, reported. That's documented in his own blog. It takes just a single get request. Uh, using that, um, they're able to um, get our get an RC using the webhook. So it's an option. I won't dive too much into that. Um, 
because it is just a known vulnerability requires it already be running the vulnerable version and just not accessible over the internet. But if it's accessible to the webhooks, GitLab could at least compromise it. Uh, on a whole, though, the idea of these sort of privileged servers and being able to set up those webhooks to attack those internal services, I think is a neat idea. Something worth exploring maybe a little bit deeper with some other services, but uh, this particular setup is kind of a major one that comes to mind where it's also likely other users may have access uh, to uh, spin up those webhooks. I mean, anybody can use GitHub or GitLab. Obviously, if you compromise like a private instance, that could also be a way of escalating. Yeah, and uh, for the brute forcing part of it, Rudamal mentions, I guess, doing some OSN and looking for people who use who, who work for the company and might have leaked passwords. Yeah, I mean, there there are some ways you might be able to take advantage of this and make the brute force more practical. Um, it's just something where it's going to be fairly slow and it, it could even be audited. Like if, if somebody's looking through their logs and they see, oh, there's a bunch of login requests with like from the, uh, from the SCM and they're all, it just keeps going and going. It, it looks pretty obvious if they're doing any amount of auditing, which is actually something that cyber security mentions in their, uh, in their resolution section as like a tip is to have auditing like that set up. Um, they also have some other tips like, uh, just restricting the access to endpoints from a CI from the SCM so that they can't hit something like the login endpoint easily. That's um, honestly also disabling the big thing. An anonymous access. But yeah, that's the big one is just restricting access to endpoints so that these kinds of attacks aren't possible at all. Um, yeah, like my ideal so, setup would be you have your server that receives basically a token from uh, the SCM and then uh proxies the request along or does like a reverse proxy sort of set up something that can just authenticate a random token used just for one repository map that onto the webhook it's allowed to actually hit and proxy the request that way um takes a little bit more effort has a little bit more of a performance overhead but that way you're not opening yourself up to well hitting anywhere (laughs) Um, and I mean, Jenkins doesn't have to be the only service. Uh, Jenkins is the one that they looked at here. It's not the only CI system. Um, there it are other options. Popular, so it, it is, yeah, one of the most popular or the most popular, I believe. Yeah. Um, so they were just kind of looking at a setup that involves the most popular software you'd you'd see. But yeah, like we've kind of hammered almost multiple times, this idea, this concept um, can be applied to other setups. And that's one of the points they try to make in the blog post. So we're shouting out is something to keep an eye out for um, is like abusing webhooks in this way. I don't think we've talked about it too much before on the podcast, but webhooks can introduce some interesting attack vectors in general. So um, yeah, it's always something to to look at if you find it in a setup of a target you're looking at. All right, so uh, our last topic here is a few interesting uh, web application firewall bypasses that a security researcher by the handle of Tierjank found in mod security. There's three techniques or chains that are documented here, um, first of which was a content type confusion between the WAF and the backend due to two rules in the mod security's recommended config. Um, and yeah, it, it used this regular expression parsing, so we're back to bad regex, basically. Um, Starting with the XML request body parser, they found the content type rule would try to match for XML content types, but the problem is it doesn't match to the beginning of the string. 
So by simply having a different content type that has application XML somewhere in the string, it'll get matched and interpreted as XML on the WAF, uh, WAF side of things. Um, and since mod security ignores comments, you can use comments inside of the XML to, to bypass the, the WAF as well. So that's kind of the, the first technique that's detailed there. They had a similar um, bypass with the JSON request body parser, um, but that one was a little bit harder to exploit because I guess just since JSON is a bit more strongly parsed, um, it was harder to get a payload in that could hide as valid JSON. Um, they did eventually manage to find one though using quotations. So um, they, they detail that one, but uh, I think the XML one is, is probably a little bit more useful um, as a WAF bypass in general. Uh, the second technique talks about um, using multi-part form data, which basically consists of requests noted by a boundary prefix with a double dash and a content disposition header. Um, so they ask the question, well, what if you just don't provide a body for the request? Um, and it turns out you can get some different behavior. Uh, mod security, for example, would just take the empty body as there's nothing here. Continue just to, on to jump the next in, sorry. Um, it's an empty body for the... Uh parameter not the entire request for the parameter yeah good 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 show so yeah if you didn't provide a body for the parameter it would just say okay there's nothing here let's just continue parsing the next parameter um the problem is some backends would start reading the next part as if it were part of the body of the first part so you you have this desync between the backend and the web application firewall um another issue uh, when it comes to multi-part form data is the fact that single new lines as in like just a single backslash n or line feed uh, would be treated as a CRLF after the body. So if you used a body with a single new line terminator, mod security would then start parsing the next part as a separate parameter, but most backends would still treat it as part of the body and only treat it as one parameter. Um, so just some disagreement between mod security and the backend, um, which could lead to you know bypassing the web app firewall through the desync, basically. And I um, will mentioned that uh when it comes to the empty uh the empty body of the parameters the author calls out specifically that mod security does actually parse those correctly uh but php apparently calls out um this exposed uh php back or yeah this example calls all php backends to be bypassable uh so it sounds like that's some that php is interpreting it incorrectly whereas mod security understands the request correctly or did i um yeah however some backends will disagree with mod security so it does sound like it's php in particular that has this issue possibly other things but php is one that the author calls out oh, man, yeah it's, it's, it's hittable because those, mod security doesn't interpret it the same way it's one of those situations where it's not totally clear who is at fault because it's it's ultimately a disagreement between different pieces of software. Uh, it's it's PHP or whoever the backend that doesn't agree with mod security that's at fault. Uh, that new line should not be interpreted as a RN. Um, it just shouldn't be. You're expected to have backslash R, backslash N as that delimiter. And by just going for the slash N, that's just wrong by spec. I would squarely put the blame on anybody parsing, uh, parsing it and continuing on. Um, it just yeah. sounds like they have the example there of PHP doing it. They're not explicit, but calling out PHP there is they're bypassable. Makes it sound like PHP is kind of at fault there. But yeah, I would definitely put fault on 
the parser who treats N as RN. Yeah. Uh, at least with the body being terminated by a new line, though, um, the article states that most backends will will parse it as like one part, whereas mod security will do too. Um, so that's at least with that one, it seems mod security deviates and might be at fault. But again, it, it's it comes down to a disagreement, um, which is also the final issue, which was uh, character set confusion. Um, this was basically down to a character encoding disagreement where if you uh, could somehow get sorry, the I am, switch, I am going to interrupt you um, just so yeah. I can backtrack what i was just talking about um i was talking about it as the rn and the n being interpreted wrong yeah that was um mod security being wrong but i was actually looking at on screen and in my head talking about the empty body thing and the fall would be php Uh, with the empty body yeah sorry about that i was i kind of was looking at one thing and saying the saying the other one uh go ahead with the care set confusion yeah, no worries. Um, so yeah, if you could somehow get the char set switched to UTF-7, uh, which they were able to do by chaining with the, the first issue, um, CRS would try to block any encoding that wasn't UTF-8, but they'd only do it on the first char set parameter. So by just setting it twice uh, in the content type, they could switch to UTF-7. Um, UTF-7 is kind of interesting in the way that it lets you encode characters as base 64, which then bypasses the firewall because I, I guess... They were expecting like UTS-7 not to be able to get through, so they just don't deal with the base 64 encoding. Um, so yeah, some cool tricks spawning from some of the parsing issues we've seen before when it comes to parsing requests. Um, some easy b- mistakes to make, like just not matching the beginning with regex or treating a simple new line as a CRLF. Um, and Rudimal says, if I was in charge of the specs, I'd just put only uh, backslash N everywhere. Yeah, CRLF sucks. Um, <laughs> there's so many issues that have popped up from it, and it's bitten me personally when I've been working on stuff a lot too. So I would definitely vibe with that, that statement. I, I hate CRLF, but it's it's here to stay, unfortunately. It's, it's been around forever. So yeah, has a uh, lot it's something of that we have to deal with. It. Yep. Uh, and it, it's definitely been uh, a strong point of argument before. <laughs> I guarantee that. So yeah, just, just basically comes down to disagreements between how things should be parsed um, or some parsing issues like the regular expressions. Again, this post is something that you could probably take into, um, like, keep in mind for looking at other, like, web app firewalls as well. Um, similar bypasses might be possible because this stuff can get tricky, uh, especially when the spec isn't, like, super clear to follow or or the implementation is just easy to get wrong. So, yeah, definitely something that could be taken into other setups and probably exists elsewhere, too. All right, uh, so that's basically all of the uh, solid topics that we have to cover for today. Z does have a couple of shout-outs, which uh, I'll let him get into here, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, two shout-outs for this episode. That is, one is cloning internal Google repositories for fun and info. This is a fun topic. Um, I didn't really want to cover it as its own topic here, just because the core issue is... He found an asset that was exposed on the internet. It had sensitive information or could be used to get sensitive information. He talks a little bit about his process of, you know, actually coming across it and some other little internal fact. So it's worth at least checking out, but I didn't find the vulnerability itself interesting enough to cover. Still worth a shout out. And the second one was a post from uh, James Kettle. This time, not so much looking at a, well, he does look at a specific case study. But um, how to turn security research into profit? As 
almost like a follow-up to the how to be a security researcher has a little bit of the same advice, but then going from research, how do you actually start trying to profit from it? Um, has some of the same advice in terms of like looking for overlooked research, identifying opportunities. Just a good post that I wanted to shout out. Um, yeah, those are the two shout outs I have for this week. All right. Yeah, and I, I will just say to add on there, like uh pretty much anything from Portswigger is is worth checking out to uh because they put out a lot of like good research that is portable. Like um yeah, they, they might have specific case studies, but it again, I've I've already kind of iterated on this, but it's one of those things where you spot it a lot in the wild if you're looking for it. Um James Kettle's posts kind of have that attribute attached to basically all of them so whenever he puts out a post it's worth checking out uh, generally speaking all right but uh yeah that's all the topics we have for today thank you everyone who tuned in you can catch the bot on twitch immediately or on other platforms like youtube tomorrow we also have previous podcasts up on spotify apple podcasts and more links on anchor if you want to join our discord and follow us on twitter links for those are down below or in the chat um but yeah with that said we'll be back tomorrow for the binary episode that's at 7 p.m eastern 4 p.m pacific uh, which is where we'll also cover the spot the bone solution that was shown in the pre-stream. We also have that in the Discord as well, for those who might have missed it. We now have a bit of a nicer spot the bone channel set up with Discord's new forms feature. So yeah, feel free to head into the thread for it and take a look. And yeah, with all that said, we'll see you tomorrow when we return for the binary podcast.